the Henry County, Kentucky farmer and poet Wendell Berry said somewhere, we must learn to acknowledge that the creation is full of mystery. He goes on to say, we must abandon arrogance and stand in awe. We must recover the sense of the majesty of creation and the ability to be worshipful in its presence. For I do not doubt that it is only the condition of humility and reverence before the world that our species will be able to remain in it. The church is defined in many ways. It's defined as a community, a spiritual home, as a building, a keeper of dreams and memories. Those definitions are correct at least some of the time. Ultimately, though, our church, and by that I mean Unitarian Universalist churches like ours, is a place that asks us to abandon arrogance and stand in awe, to use Barry's words. Good churches help us recover a sense of majesty. At its best, the church helps us as individuals and as a collective find what is worthiest of love. The Unitarian Universalist Church isn't a modern invention. The idea of how we do church isn't an immaculate idea, to use an old Unitarian phrase. It didn't drop from the sky and plop down in the mind of some Massachusetts Bay colonist 400 years ago. It didn't pop up in the 1930s or 60s or the 90s or 2000s. Unitarian Universalism isn't a political action group with a steeple, and it's not a poor man's country club. So what is it? A popular covenant spoken in Unitarian Universalist churches help us get at what our ultimate concern is. The covenant was written by the Universalist pastor and circuit writer L. Griswold Williams, and it goes like this. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other and with God. The liberal church's ultimate concern is the covenant we make with each other to be the church. This covenant isn't made with the Unitarian Universalist Association in Boston. It's not made with the churches in Appleton or Madison, though all of those are our partners in faith. The covenant we make, as many UU churches profess, is with the divine and with one another. The question we must constantly ask ourselves is not what are our beliefs, but rather what are our shared mutual loyalties in a covenantal church? Note that distinction. Not our beliefs, but our loyalties. If you've ever worshipped in a Russian or a Greek Orthodox church, you've participated in a faith that's largely unchanged. The languages have been added as it's moved throughout the world. The music's been updated a bit, but the core of the service, its liturgy would be familiar to Orthodox Christians from almost any era. It's totally the opposite for liberal mainline churches. We are constantly evolving. If our ancestors from just a few decades ago showed up today, they would have a lot of questions. But the one thing that shouldn't puzzle our ancestors is how we continue to do church, and by that I mean how the church is structured and managed. The way we function as a church 
is vital to our free liberal faith because humankind is always changing and adapting. If you look through the archives of this church's orders of service dating back to the 19th century, you can see how much our services have changed from our founding in 1870 to today. What hasn't changed, or rather what shouldn't change, are the minutes taken at governance meetings. Change is good most of the time, but in order to change well, we must constantly ask ourselves what our church's ultimate concern is while we remain tethered to the roots of our faith. But the only way we can start to answer this question of ultimate concern is if we first understand how we're supposed to be the church. Now, I know nobody at this church thinks like this, but some Unitarian Universalists have an arrogant idea that the way we do church is unlike anyone else, that we're somehow special. But the truth is, Baptists do church just like us, so do some Jews and other denominations. What all of us share is a fundamentally theological vision. Just consider that Unitarian Universalists believe that creation, all of creation, is interwoven. We also believe in the inherent worth and dignity of all people. Both of those beliefs are theological one that may be articulated differently, but at the same time, those beliefs that we have, they're also held by Baptists and Jews and Catholics too. I make this point about our rootedness in theology and religion because first and foremost, our church must serve humankind's need for spiritual communion with a community of people who are committed, caring, and helpful. The religious diversity in UU churches works only if we are totally committed to sharing this theological vision of spiritual communion. Now, just this last week, a few people sent me the New York Times article about Harvard's election of an atheist to lead the university's chaplains. Now, students interviewed about Greg Epstein's election said that what qualified Epstein for this historic position was his ability to craft meaningful religious services, his willingness to address big questions, his commitment to students' lives, his concern in times of need. In other words, he understands the importance of pastoral ministry, and he understands that his work is inherently religious. And what does it mean to be religious? Religion, the root of the word religion, it literally means to bind and connect over and again. To be religious is to bind yourself to that which matters most, to the people and places and causes in life that matter most to us and the people we love. But this is hard. Just look at the divorce rate in America. Furthermore, just consider how hard it is to be a church, to make decisions as a church. Just look at the number of churches closing throughout this nation. If you want a personal response about church work, just ask anyone who's ever served on a church board. Ask any minister, current or former. None of those people will tell you that doing church is easy. Of course, doing church, being a part of a leadership team at church, it can be fun and rewarding, it can be inspiring, but it can also be enraging. But one thing it can't be is easy. It's not easy to do church anywhere. People come to UU churches 
with vastly different needs and expectation. Here's a line taken directly from the UUA's website that underscores this. Quote, because we are often radical individualists for whom religion is a private or inward feeling, a theological perspective on the church, i.e. the religious community, seems incomprehensible to us, end quote. But history shows that we must have a theological perspective if we want to survive. Rugged individualists are great race car drivers, but it turns out rugged individualists are pretty crappy congregants. You either row together or you're sitting ducks. People in UU churches, just like on college campuses, are religiously diverse. This church, in fact, has Christians. It has atheists, pagans, earth-centered spiritualists, Buddhists, and so on, and that is a good thing. Now, I personally may be a Christian Unitarian Universalist, but you see, I believe that my faith is made better by being a part of diverse religious community. And insofar as that is true, my and others who are Christian Unitarian Universalists, we enrich the spiritual life of people who believe differently than us. And that's how it's supposed to work. Being challenged by someone's belief is part of being a Unitarian Universalist. If you want everyone at the church you go to to think like you, you have found the wrong church. If you want a minister who preaches things that will only entertain you, you have found the wrong minister. It's because of this diversity that we must center not what we believe, but rather our historical commitment to mutual loyalties. It's not that you can believe anything you want here either, because you can't. Unitarian Universalism isn't just another name for relativism. But the core of who we are is how we do church. So what is it that we care about? That is the question we should start with. Our institutional history begins in the 1630s, when the Puritans started peeling away from their local parishes in England. People started traveling to hear preachers in other parishes. You see, for centuries, people sat in the pews of their local parish listening to crusty old ministers sent to them by a bishop they'd never met. By the middle of the 17th century, the Bible wasn't just at church anymore, though. It was printed and published, available to the masses to read for themselves. And that's exactly what they did. And it changed everything. They discovered stories that filled them with awe. They read about underdogs who brought down giants with slingshots. They read about Jesus, who said the last shall be first, and prophets who said that justice and freedom isn't just for kings and popes. Life's goodness is for everyone, the Bible said. At the same time, seminaries in Cambridge and Oxford, they started pumping out ministers who were starting to say new things. It was an era of religious zeal that culminated in a radical reformation that birthed the church governance model we still use today. You see, our spiritual ancestors, they didn't want bishops telling them where to go to church. They didn't want their hard-earned money going to a church that didn't ask questions that mattered to them. They wanted preachers who would speak the truth from their hearts. 
and the congregants wanted to be part of a church's mission and ministry rather than just silent observers. They wanted a spiritual relationship, not a spiritual dictatorship. And slowly, the Puritans pulled away from the Episcopal Church, leaving England for the American colonies, not because they didn't believe in God anymore, not because they didn't want to go to church, but because they wanted a chance to make a church like Jesus did. A free church where people thought and talked freely, where the voices of the pastor and the people mattered equally. But the true genesis of the free church didn't start with the Puritans in the 1630s. Our ancestors believed that the way we do church actually started more than 4,000 years ago. They believed that the way we do church started when God called Abraham and Sarah and said, Go forth from your country and I will bless you. But insofar as you are blessed, you must live in a way that blesses the world. The most important Unitarian Universalist theologian of the past 100 years is James Luther Adams, or JLA as his students called him. And he taught at Meadville and Harvard throughout his career. When JLA taught the history of Unitarian Universalism, his lectures would travel across continents and back and forth in time. He'd grab yesterday's newspaper to make a point about our faith, and then he'd flip open a Bible and read something from the prophets, and then he'd fast forward to medieval Europe and then over to survey the ancient Mideast empires. And then he'd fumble around in his briefcase for a few minutes to find the copy of a board meeting from 1947. And he would tell the story of how Unitarian Universalism was done way out on the boondocks. When our ancestors were finally able to read the Bible for themselves, they saw in there the roots of a free church. Of course, we've grown and evolved since then, but those are our roots. And it's these roots that will keep us alive. JLA believed that the integrity of the free church comes down to our loyalty to the spirit of love at work in the hearts and minds of the local members. We must trust the Spirit because, as JLA said, if you try and control the Spirit, you kill it. We Unitarian Universalist proud members of the Free Church must trust that the Spirit of love moves amongst us, even in our differences and disagreements. This commitment to community or covenant, specifically the covenantal organizational pattern, was the key element of our ancestors' doctrine of the Free Church. This doctrine, as Alice Blair Wesley notes, quote, is a doctrine grounded in an understanding of how the power of mutual love deepens and works among individuals and free religious groups. Moreover, as Wesley notes, it is the one element of our ancestors' doctrine we liberals have most consistently kept in our liberal free churches, end quote. And the name we give our organizational pattern is congregational polity. In churches with congregational polity, it isn't Rome or a presbytery or a bishop that makes decisions. Our churches aren't sent ministers, and a remote headquarters doesn't control our assets. The ultimate authority in churches with congregational polity is the church as a collective. And if you've been paying attention, and I know everyone here has hung on my every word, then you'll recall that just a few minutes ago I said that ultimate concern is fundamentally 
a theological one, which leads to the seemingly innocent question that drives at the heart of what I'm talking about. And the question is this, what does congregational polity have to do with our religion? Now, if you take home one thing from this sermon, I hope the one thing you take home is this. Congregational polity, the way we do church, has everything to do with what we hold most important. Our 17th century ancestors believed that the patterns of our church's organization actually reveal what our church regards as most worthy. The truth is, in a Unitarian Universalist church, organization and theology, they really aren't different things. The way we're organized is a function of our theology. For this organizational pattern to function, quote, the people must gather regularly and often for ongoing mutual learning to take place. Otherwise, in the words of Alice Wesley, the spirit of love is just a bodiless abstraction. That bears in mind the words of St. Paul who said a church without love is nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm going to end this morning's sermon by highlighting eight key patterns that I believe our spiritual ancestors got right. Of course, they got some stuff wrong, but that's a sermon I'll preach for another time. I'm indebted to Alice Blair Wesley for these insights. So the first key pattern the free church is a group of people who want the spirit of love to reign in their lives. If you don't want to get better at love, if you don't want to get better at loving, this is the wrong church for you. The second is the free church is entirely self-governing, free from any outside control whatsoever. That means that whatever obligations you have to governments or political parties to the larger community, to your family, to your boss at work, whatever, these things have no, that means zero authority in the church. They have zero authority because it is the church's members who elect capable and active leaders from among them to govern every facet of the church community's life. The third says that loyalty to the spirit of love means that the church's membership does its best to understand the truth as we can, and that means we are committed to reason. We practice a learned faith, which means Unitarian Universalists are lifelong learners who are committed to truth spoken plainly. The fourth is that we reason together about what we love. We hold each other accountable and when someone does something wrong, we don't just call them out, we also call them in. The only reason we'd cast someone out is if they refused to engage with us or did something totally dreadful. The fifth says that membership is for anyone willing to covenant or promise to be together with us so long as they can be in beloved community. The sixth is that the church is organized, not organic. Now, what does that mean? In some, it means that children born to members are not automatically members. To be a member of the free church requires that a choice is made by an adult after they have given it serious spiritual discernment, which leads me to the seventh key pattern. To join a free church is, is to make a promise. And I know that sounds simple, but it's not. 
by signing this church's membership book, you are covenanting, promising to live in intimate companionship with others who have made the same promise as you, to live with all the integrity you can muster, with all the integrity they can muster for all the years of your life. Now, why on earth would someone make a crazy promise like this? They make crazy promises like this because the chance to know someone is a gift. If you've been a member here at this church for a bit, just take a moment and think of all the amazing people who have called this church their spiritual home. Their life and their legacies are a gift. The people who gave a portion of their lives to this church, the thing is, is their legacies continue to minister to us today. All of us possess inherent worth and dignity, and the only freedom adequate to this dignity is to do what love asks of us by recognizing that the greatest blessings of life, they come to us and through us, through others. And the eighth and final pattern demands that we ask what our faithfulness means as we relate to the human race and the world around us. It means we care about creation. We care about our neighbors near and far. The 16th century Hungarian Unitarian pastor Francis David, he famously said that we need not think alike to love alike. And so the question is, what is worthiest of UU Wasso's love? What is it that helps us abandon arrogance and stand in awe? Amen.